Well, I usually start with asking you to turn somewhere in your Bible. We're going to be in three different places today, so I could give you all three. Matthew chapter 6, Philippians chapter 2, and 1 Corinthians chapter 13. But I will tell you that the first two will be on the PowerPoint, so if you want to turn somewhere, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 might be a good place to turn to. And we'll be there just a little bit. We're going to start with Scripture this morning. We're going to start with uh, two verses from Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew 6, this is the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And I'll give you a little bit of context. Uh, Right before the verses we're about to read, Jesus talks about storing up treasures in heaven rather than storing up treasures on earth. And then right after the verses we're about to read, Jesus talks about how you can't serve uh, two gods. You can't serve both God and money. You have to choose who you're going to serve. And then we find this strange, puzzling passage, Matthew 6, verse 22 and 23, that's often overlooked when it comes to the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to start here with the words from Jesus. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of life. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness. These two verses, often overlooked, not something we quote very often, not something we teach on very often or preach on very often. What does Jesus mean by this? Well, talking about money, talking about treasures of heaven, not treasures on earth. Maybe he has in mind this evil eye, this eye that covets, that desires um, someone else's financial gain. Maybe that's what he has in mind. When, he talk, when he's talking about your eyes, your eyes either being healthy or your eyes being unhealthy, he's not talking about physical eyesight, I don't think. I don't think Jesus is saying, check your eyes and see whether or not you need glasses or you need to go to the eye doctor. I think really what Jesus is challenging us to think about is the way that we see things. Like the way we see the world, our worldview, the way that we see other people, if our eyes are healthy, we'll be full, filled with light. If our eyes are unhealthy, we'll be filled with darkness. But then he says, if the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? So, are our eyes filled with light, or are they filled with darkness? Last month, there was a, a really popular YouTube video that was circulating around social media all over YouTube. It was by Matthew McConaughey. Most of you probably know that name because he's from Longview, Texas, famous movie star. And it was an inspirational speech that had these different video clips that would play as he was talking in the background. And uh, it was popular. People were sharing it, liking it, all that stuff. So I listened to it a little bit and I thought, where is this coming from? Is this from a movie clip or what is this? So I looked it up. And it was from uh, a speech that he gave. He was asked to be the keynote speaker at the University of Houston, I think it was in 2015. So I looked that speech up, and it was a 45-minute keynote speech at a graduation. How would you like to sit through a 45-minute graduation speech? So I watched clips of it, and he says something in the graduation speech that I heard in these inspirational videos that caught my attention. He very nonchalantly says, all of us have two wolves inside of us. A good wolf and a bad wolf, and he says, and both of them want to eat. And then he goes on to say, I suggest that we feed the good wolf more than we feed the bad wolf. 
Now, this morning when I was going through this before church started, someone said, uh, is that, isn't that like an old Asian proverb? And I was like, I don't know. It came from Matthew McConaughey, so he probably stole it from that. But when he said that, I thought, okay, he's on to something there. There's a wolf inside of us, a good wolf and a bad wolf, and both of them want to eat. What I would disagree with him on is we don't need to feed the bad wolf at all. We need to feed the good wolf. So what's going on inside of us? What are we feeding? Are we feeding the light or are we feeding the darkness? The Apostle Paul, if you read through his letters, you will often hear language like the spirit or the flesh. So are you feeding the spirit or are you feeding the flesh? Are you feeding the light or are you feeding the darkness? Are you feeding the good wolf or are you feeding the bad wolf? And for the sake of today's lesson, I would ask this question. Are you feeding the positive or are you feeding the negative? I titled this sermon, Switching Off Negativity. For the month of August, we're doing a little sermon series on our mental health, our thoughts, our thought patterns. And we, last week we looked at do not worry and, and how often we worry about things. And Jesus tells us, don't worry about your life. So this morning, what I want to focus on is negative thinking. And, and so I want to start with us just being honest about whether or not we are negative thinkers. So how many of you have a tendency to be negative? I'm raising my hand on that. How many of you aren't comfortable raising your hand, but you do have a tendency to be negative? Should have been more hands going up. I imagine a lot of us have a tendency to be negative. I do. I will admit that. How many of you know negative people? More? Maybe more? Okay. Uh, I was thinking about my life. And from early childhood on, people that I've been connected with, sometimes friends that I have had, the common ground that we found was that we were negative about the same thing. Think about that in school. You make friends because you don't like this person or this teacher or this subject. And then you build a friendship based on what you're negative about. Maybe that's a way to make a connection, but it's not a healthy way to build a friendship. So we all know negative people. And sometimes I can be that person. But what are we negative about? If we all have a tendency at one point or another in our lives, maybe in our week, maybe in our month, to be negative about something, what are we negative about? Why are we negative? Well, sometimes we're negative because we're having a bad day. Maybe we're having a bad month or a bad year. Maybe we've experienced some tragedy in life, and that's just caused us to look at things through a dark lens, and we're negative. Maybe you just live in Texas in August, and if you're like me, you don't like being sweaty and hot all the time, and so I'm, the negativity increases during the summertime for me. Uh, we're negative about people. We look at people and we size them up and down and we can be judgmental of people based on the way they look, by the way they talk, by their interests and hobbies. We can be negative towards people or towards school. So this is being in the school year, how many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, but some of you have probably already been negative about school or what's going on at school. Maybe you're negative about an organization. People can certainly be negative towards church. Uh, I would add to that, any organization, whether it's a school or church or whatever it may be, that changes something, don't change anything because people will be negative about change. We just have a tendency to be negative as human beings. The Laboratory of Neuroimaging at USC came out with this study. They did an experiment on students, which I, I just like that hearing that. They do experiments on students. And 
what they discovered as they studied the brain was that the average human has about 48.6 thoughts per minute. Does that sound about right to you? Some of you are like, I, I have maybe one or two thoughts per minute. I, I told you last week as we talked about the mind that uh, my mind is hyperactive. So that sounds about right to me. 48.6 thoughts per minute. Most of the time, we're not even aware of our own thoughts. But if you took a 24-hour day, that adds up to about 70,000 thoughts per day. Now that's even including while we're sleeping, but I think the non-conscious part of our brain is still working while we're sleeping. So almost up to, give or take some, 70,000 thoughts running through our mind every day. Out of all of these thoughts, what is the percentage of those thoughts that are negative? I wonder what you would guess on that. These same researchers assess that up to 80% of these thoughts can be negative and repetitive. Does that sound right to some of you? Some of you are being honest and saying yes. Some of you are like, I know people that are like that. And you don't want to admit that you are, but almost 80% of our thoughts are negative and repetitive. When it's repetitive, I think that just means that we create these patterns we have these mental habits. We create a narrative going in our mind, and then we just go with it, and it's repetitive, and most of the time we're not even aware of it, and it can be very negative. Why are we like this as human beings? You know, if you ever plan to do a sermon on negative thinking versus positive thinking, be prepared to be tested. As I have prepared for this sermon all week, I have constantly found myself being tempted. I catch myself, oh, I'm doing it now. And this is what I'm preaching about Sunday morning. I've told some people I'm preaching on negative thinking, and every single person says, are you directing the lesson at me? I'm like, no, I'm directing the lesson at me. It's been a great challenge for myself. Uh, the next passage I want to look at is Philippians chapter 2. It was our scripture reading this morning, Philippians 2, 14 through 18. It'll be on the PowerPoint. Apostle Paul writing to the church in Philippi says these words. Verse 14, do everything without grumbling or arguing. Some translations say do everything without murmuring or arguing. And still some translations say do everything without complaining or arguing. So that you may become blameless and pure. Children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. And look at verse 18. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul, in this letter to the church in Philippi, he uses the Greek word to think or think quite often throughout this letter. Paul is challenging the root of what we think about and why we think about what we think about. And to think about positive things, Philippians 4.8, to be joyful. So he doesn't use the word negativity here or negative thinking in this passage, but he does talk about murmuring, grumbling, or complaining. So I know myself, and I know when I'm negative, when I'm having negative thoughts, guess what? 
I find something to complain about. Anybody else with me on that? There is plenty that we can complain about. We can complain about people. We can complain about life. We can complain about whatever it is that we're a part of. There's always something that we can complain about. But what Paul's saying, if we spend our time murmuring and complaining and then arguing, we're not going to shine like stars. And he wants us to shine like stars and to be that light, to be that example to the world around us. So Paul offers an invitation in verse 18. So be glad and rejoice with me. I like that invitation. Will you take up Paul on that invitation? Let's be glad and let's rejoice with him. Have you ever taken the time to examine your own thoughts, to examine your self-talk, and to deconstruct some of these mental habits and patterns and thought patterns that we have? Over a year ago, I asked this question, do you ever think about what you think about? You know, Jesus tells us to love God with all of our minds. Paul says to take every thought captive and make them obedient to Christ. In Romans 12, 2, Paul says to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I think the mind is a very important place when it comes to our spirituality. And if our thoughts just go rogue on us, and we never take the time to examine our thoughts, to think about why we get so irritated with people. Why do we get upset about this or that? Why are we sensitive? Why are we frustrated? Why are we negative? If we don't take the time to at least second guess ourselves, then our thoughts just go undisciplined. So we have to take some time to deconstruct our own thinking. Uh, last year, last September, a guy named Robbie Goldman was here with us. Uh, he's the guy down at the bottom corner over here on the, on the left. Uh, he works for an organization, a, a domestic mission organization called Dry Bones Denver. Some of you may remember him being here or you've heard me mention Dry Bones before. I worked there over a decade ago. It's a, a street outreach for street kids in, in downtown Denver. And when we say street kids, that could include anybody from 12-year-old all the way to the 30-year-old. And part of what Dry Bones does is they have this table set up in their office. They have a living room, and they invite street kids that they're closer to each week to come into the Dry Bones office and to share a home-style family meal with them. And then they have a Bible study. And Robbie said something to me in a conversation when he was here last year that has stayed with me for a year, but he said, usually if we start that meal, start that Bible study with the question... How was your day? Common question, right? We, we see each other in the foyer. We say, how's it going? He said, it doesn't go very well when you ask, how was your day? Because most of these kids have spent the night on the street, so they're sleep deprived. Uh, they've probably been eating in a few days. They're malnourished. Uh, most of them really are trying to get their life together somehow, but you can't take a shower, and you can't have a successful job interview and it just seems like the cycle repeats itself. So when you ask them, how was your day? Immediately they go to the negative. And they start telling you everything that was wrong about their day. So he said, we've learned something along the way. And when we have this meal and have this Bible study, we've learned to first start with the question, what went right today? He flipped the switch on it. What went right today And he said, when you ask that, 
And they're only given permission to tell you what went right in their day. They may have to stop and really think about it. But there's always something that probably goes well that we could say, okay, well that went right. So I was teaching uh, Jimmy McMahon's class last month. And I was kind of practicing some of these mental health lessons on them. And I told them uh, the Thursday before we went on vacation. I use that as an example. Uh, I started the day off, I had a lot of work to do, getting ready for Sunday. I had a busy morning, but I got a lot accomplished. And then in the afternoon, I had to take the kids with me for a little bit. So I thought, well, I'll put on a show for them, and I'll keep working. I got a lot of work to do. That didn't work out so well. My kids were pretty chaotic, and it was wild and crazy and very distracting. And then I got a call about the vacation we were about to take, and there was some sudden change of plans. And then I didn't get the work done that I needed to get done, and so guess what? I, I went home that day, and I was in a very foul mood. You ever like that? Just come home in a bad mood, everything went wrong in the day. And then I thought about this question from Robbie. What went right today? Well, there's a lot that went wrong, but then I thought, well, what went right? Well, I got stuff done in the morning. I got to spend some extra time with my kids, even though I didn't enjoy it like I should have. <laughs> we get to go on vacation. Sure, some things changed, and it might have been a little irritating to me, but the fact that we live in a world where we get to go on vacation, that's a beautiful thing. I didn't get all my work done, but I still had two days to finish some things. So when you flip the switch, when you change the perspective of how you're looking at it, and you ask the question, what went right today, it just changes everything. It switches off from the negative thinking to the positive thinking. A preacher I like to listen to sometimes is a guy named Erwin McManus, and I heard him say a while back in a sermon, one negative thought is one too many. And then he went on to say, I have never felt paralyzed by thinking positive thoughts. I've never felt paralyzed by thinking too much about love. He said, but I have felt paralyzed, and I think worst case scenarios, when we train our brains to see the negative in everything and everyone, that's when we paralyze ourselves. And we get stuck in this rut, and we become a prisoner of our own thinking. So the passage that I ask you to actually turn to is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, this passage, very famous, uh, Paul's words on love, it's often read in wedding ceremonies, but I don't think that's what it was originally intended for. The whole chapter is beautiful, but for the sake of time this morning, I'm going to read mainly just verses 4 through 7, and we're going to examine what Paul says about love and how love is lived out and there's one thing I'm going to hone in on after we read this, but I'm going to start in verse 4, 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in truth. It bears all things Believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. In that first part of verse 8, it says, love never ends. Uh, sometimes I like to just go through and read 1 Corinthians 13 as a reminder to myself what love looks like. All of that, all of that that Paul mentions basically is 
counterintuitive to how we want to live. But one thing that I'm specifically drawn to for this morning's lesson is in verse 5, it says in the version I just read, love is not resentful, but it depends on how you translate it. Some English translations word it like this, love keeps no record of wrongs. Love keeps no record of wrongs. A few years ago, I had set up a meeting with a guy that I needed to talk to. And this guy was irritating me, and he was irritating a lot of people. And to get my mind focused before I went to talk to him, I pulled out my phone, and I pulled out the notes on my phone, and I started writing down everything that this guy had done wrong to me and to others. Because I wanted to go in with a clear mind, and when he you know, tries to come back with something, I can say, well, you did this, you did that. And then on my way to his house, for whatever reason, maybe it was the Holy Spirit working, 1 Corinthians 13.5 popped in my mind. Love keeps no record of wrongs. And then I thought, this is exactly what I've just done. I made a list of everything that he has done wrong. So before I went to his house, I deleted the list. And I went in list-free. I got rid of my ammo. We had a great conversation. He was very remorseful. He was thankful that I talked to him about it. There was a lot of forgiveness and grace in the conversation. And I don't think it would have gone that way if I would have gone in with my ammo and my list of everything that he had done wrong. Paul says, love keeps no record of wrongs. But we are record-keeping people. We have memories. That's the way that God has created us. We can't just wipe the slate clean and just completely forget things. So as John Orberg says, in light of 1 Corinthians 13, 5, if we're going to keep records of something, what if we kept a record of rights? What if we looked at our spouses, our children, our friends, our fellow church members, people at work, people at school, and what if, what if instead of building up everything in our minds, making this mental list and rehearsing it of everything that somebody has done wrong to us, what if we kept a record of rights? What if we practice the principle of the doubt theory or, or principle? What if we gave people the benefit of the doubt and we said, you know what, they, maybe, maybe they didn't intend it the way that I took it. Or maybe they didn't mean that. Or maybe they're having a bad day and they said that, but that's not who they really are. What if we tried practicing that? I imagine there would be a little bit of pushback to this. Some people are probably automatically thinking, this is too soft. This is too lovey-dovey. Like, just keeping a record of, of rights, you can't just completely ignore the wrong that other people do. And yeah, there's a time and a place where you need to have hard conversations. If somebody's caught in a sin and you're a friend of that person, you might need to lovingly try and correct them. Sure, there's a time and a place for all that. What I'm referring to is that constant narrative that we have going in our minds. If up to 80% of our thoughts are negative and repetitive, that means that that's the same uh, percentage as how we view other people. So what if instead of viewing other people immediately with negative thoughts and what they've done wrong, what if it, we at least tried to start with their good qualities and practice love and that? Uh, when I was in high school, I played football and uh, we had block scheduling 
So that means we had four classes each day, and each class was an hour and a half long. It was horrible. And if you go to school and you only have 50-minute classes, you should be thankful because hour and a half long classes are long. And football was every day, third period. And then we had lunch after football, and our coach set it up that way so that if he wanted, to, he wanted us to keep practicing beyond the period, he could just eat into our lunch. No pun intended. I didn't even mean to say that. But he would, he would make us go to lunch late. So we would do third period football, go to lunch, go to fourth period, then go to after school practice. Uh, our coach was kind of a, a mean, hardened man. He was unapproachable. He was, he's not emotional. He's not going to be a buddy-buddy with you. One day during third period, we finished our practice, and before he let us go to lunch, he made us all sit in our lockers. And he sat down, and this was kind of odd. It was very uncharacteristic of him, and he said... You can't go to lunch today until you say something positive about one of your teammates. And we were all just sitting there in dead silence, like, what is happening right now? What? Is this like a therapy session, like a Dr. Phil type thing? So a guy named Seth Garcia spoke up and he said, concentration. And there was a long pause, and then Coach Sedbury goes, so obviously Seth Garcia was confused. He had no idea what Coach Severy was asking. And he said, you can't go to lunch today until you say something positive about one of your teammates. And I understood what he was saying. So I spoke up. I was a little bit nervous. But I said, Ben Palmer is a really good blocker. Because Ben Palmer played offensive line. I played defense. And he knocked me to the ground almost every single practice. So I'm in it. He's a good blocker. And then there was a long silence. He goes, you can go to lunch. And then one by one, as soon as you said something positive about one of your teammates, you were then allowed to go to lunch. So I was the first one in the cafeteria, and I was watching as they slowly came, and I was wondering who wasn't going to make it out of there because it was possible for them to say something positive. But as I got older, that stuck with me, and I think now I know what he was doing. It was a very negative vibe in our team. Some things were going wrong, and, and when things go wrong, when you lose, you blame somebody. We become hypercritical of other people. So his solution was, we need to change the atmosphere, we need to change the attitude of the team. So he wanted us to actually verbalize something positive about someone else. And it did make a difference in our attitude. It didn't make a difference in whether or not we won or lost. We still lost plenty of games that season, but we had better attitudes. And that has stuck with me. And recently, I've been thinking about that. Like, what if we started family, family gatherings that way? Before we eat, you have to say something positive about someone else. Somebody, some mom out here is going to try that. Somebody else is going to be irritated with me for suggesting that. <laughs> what if we started meetings that way? There's always things that we need to self-correct or examine or criticize, but what if we started with, what's going right? Here's something positive that has worked. What if before you could go to lunch today, you had to say something positive about this church or someone in this church? How many of you would go hungry or how many of you would have something positive to say? If you have something positive to say, bring it my way. I would love to hear it. There's always the one or two negative comments and that's what preachers dwell on for the rest of the day. My point is not to just be all, let's just ignore the bad stuff and just be happy all the time. My point is, as we examine our thoughts, the 48.6 thoughts per minute, up to 70,000 thoughts per day, 80% of those negative and repetitive, 
Is what if we flip the switch and we switch off negativity and we just did a little examination of our own life and we asked ourselves this question, what are you feeding? Are you feeding the good wolf or are you feeding the bad wolf? Are you feeding the light within you or are you feeding the darkness? Are you feeding the positive? Are you feeding the negative? Are you feeding the spirit? Are you feeding the flesh? Is it possible to think instead of what went wrong, what went right? Is it possible to look at others and give them the benefit of the doubt and see their good qualities before we completely dissect who they are and everything they've done wrong? And then if you looked at this from another perspective, if what, if, what if Jesus only focused on what we did wrong? What if Jesus looked at me or you and He had a record of every single thing that we've done, every sin that we've committed, and we could see something that we did five years ago, last year, last night, whatever it may be. How would we do with that test? I think we'd all be doomed. We're all, for those of us who are Christians, we're on a journey of transformation, but we slip up, we stumble, we sin. And thankfully, when Jesus went to the cross, knowing all of our wrongdoings, He took all of that on Himself, and through the cross, He made us right with God. Through the cross, Jesus forgave our sins. Through the cross, through the death, the burial, and the resurrection, Jesus said, you are forgiven. So maybe you're in a place in your life where you need to receive that forgiveness and that grace and be baptized into Christ. Or maybe you were baptized a long time ago and you've been walking this road for a long time and maybe some of this resonated with you today. Maybe you just need to extend the same grace to others that you have received from God. I'm not sure where you're at, but I want you to know that as we sing a few more songs, we have shepherds around the room in the back up front with me. This is not just something we say on a weekly basis just to end it. We mean it. If you need to receive prayers, if you want to be baptized into Christ, this is a great opportunity for you to respond to this invitation. Let's stay and continue to sing.